You are listening to a sermon from Mission Point St. John. We hope this message encourages a deeper connection between you and Jesus, our Savior. I have a, a friend who often shares very strange ideas with me, and I'm going to tell you one, but I, don't want, I want you to remember that it's my friend that had this idea, not me. So I, I keep this next fact a little bit quiet around others, but if I'm honest, I kind of find his ideas interesting. Again, I didn't say a good idea, but Interesting. One of these ideas that he's brought up in the past is the idea for an experiment in in which a group of of children are taught the wrong colors for the first years of their life. So, for example, blue becomes yellow, red becomes green, and, and so on. The child sees the same colors as you or I, but the names have been changed. No Outside interference is allowed. The books have all been changed within the house. I don't know if the kid would be suspicious of scribble marks in the book or not. I don't know. If there's ever a challenge to this, maybe in the outside world, when they leave the house, they simply respond that others are mistaken. They're the ones who are wrong. And of course, as a child, we rely on our parents to tell us the truth and teach us the truth. And again, just to be clear, this is a terrible idea, and I would have no part in actually doing this. My kids know their colors. You quiz them after. But it's interesting to think what this would look like. I thought about this. Imagine, for the first four years of the child's life, the parents tell them the wrong names for colors, and then the school bus shows up on the first day of school. The blue school bus. A blue school bus with green flashing lights when it stops. And the child gets on this blue bus and drives past red meadows of tall grass under red skies. Over the white asphalt they go, staying on their side of the blue line. The problem might go unnoticed in all the excitement of the first day. But how long before the problem is noticed, you know? How long does that poor kid make it into his first day? How often is it that colors are used to specify, you know, which room a child is supposed to go to? Or which which station they're supposed to be at during class time? I had to ask my uh, oldest daughter, Miriam, about this. Uh, This is quite some time ago now that I asked her about this, but, you know, I asked her about situations where she had to rely on knowing her colors to get by in school. And she said, only in kindergarten. And I'm thinking, perfect. A child's first long-term interaction with the outside world. She told me about the blue bag that they had that held all of their art supplies. It'd be troubling, wouldn't it? Okay, everybody, grab your blue bag. (laughs) I don't have a blue bag. My mom sent me with his yellow bag. What's wrong with you people? You have yellow bags too? 
And then the teacher says, everybody take your green crayon and color in the grass. And take the blue crayon and color in the sky. Yellow for the sun. That poor kid. Okay, let's turn this example around. You're probably wondering, what is this guy going on about? Is it comedy night at Mission Point? Let's turn it around for a bit on a serious note. For people of faith, how important does that example make our beliefs about God? For the person of faith, what we believe about God is going to have a major effect on everything that we allow that belief in God to pervade. And if you are a committed believer, a committed person of faith, then that is going to have a lot of potential for good or for bad in your life. So if you're the type of person today who goes deep with your faith, then how damaging could wrong beliefs about God be in your life? To, to look at it another way, even if you are a person of no particular faith, perhaps what you've heard of God might not be all that inviting. Because truthfully, there are all sorts of different versions of God out there. And we would do well, I think, as people of faith, to sort out which one is the real one. The first version of God that I kind of want to mention today and, 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 and talk about is a version that makes its rounds in a lot of churches and faith circles. It's the God who stands over you waiting for you to mess up. The God who stands over you waiting to snap you back in line when you get out of line. In this version of God, God is waiting to catch you on something so he can send you to hell, basically. I know that sounds extreme, and I apologize if it's crass, but practically that's how it works out. I've seen it. Some other characteristics of this life lived in front of this God might include thinking that you've had some bad thought about someone and Jesus just happens to return at that very moment and you haven't repented, you're not going to make it to heaven. It's all a timing thing, right? And if it just so happens, then I'm in trouble. You, you start to live with a lot of spiritual anxiety if that's the state that you live in. Your basis for prayer, maybe, and all of the other spiritual disciplines, fasting, uh, coming to church, all of those things, is to do the things you need to do to stay in right standing with God. Or you have an internal standard of do's and don'ts by which you judge yourself and others, but disconnected from a life that God offers. The results are bleak. When one has this view of God, they are missing the biblical view of God. What are the results of that kind of life? I'm going to give you three, three, what I think are three results of living under this kind of God. First, you live in the wrong kind of fear of God. It's true that the Proverbs say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I get it. God's big and God's scary in some ways. He can pretty much do what He wants. But that fear that the the wise writer of Proverbs is talking about is not the same thing 
as that everyday fear that we experience, you know, that keeps us from crossing the road in traffic or that kind of thing. There's a difference between being afraid of and being in awe and respect of. And the results are different. Another result, I think, of living under this God is you probably feel like you are never good enough. And, and, and just to be clear, you're not. But it's still not a great thing to feel all the time. And the important difference is that, you know, you will focus on your depravity and you will try to white-knuckle your good behavior even though it feels futile rather than letting God change your heart through His Spirit. Because that God that hangs over you waiting for you to mess up He's not exactly approachable. And further, you might hope that through your exterior performance, God might overlook your true character within. It's the danger of the Pharisee. Because likely you will find yourself focused on exterior things, especially on other people. Because if you focus on other people, you don't have to worry about yourself. It's easy to be critical of others. It saves us the trouble and saves us the pain that it might give us to look internally. At least I'm not that bad, right? There was a guy in the Bible who said that, but he wasn't the one who went with the blessing. And this leads to another result and I say it with love today, and if you're feeling like this is the God you live under, I want you to really start to examine yourself. Is that you end up with the attitude of the Pharisee in that story. Like Nicodemus, who was of the sect of the Pharisees. In John chapter 3, just from the text we read, it's in this very conversation. He was mistaken about God, even though he spent all of his time studying God's Word. That's what Nicodemus was. He, was, uh, he, was uh, he understood the law inside and out, but he had the wrong idea of who God was. I do appreciate Nicodemus because he was curious. And it's to him that this conversation happens and we get this famous John 3.16 where we learn that God did not come to point an accusing finger at the world, but to bring life, the eternal kind of life, into it. So, what is God then? If He's not the vindictive taskmaster that stands above us waiting to knock us back into line, who is this God? John 3.16 introduces us to the true God, the God of the Bible, the real God who lives today. Renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has quipped, helpfully I think, that the way many people understand John 3.16, this isn't what it says, but the way that people understand it is as if it said, for God so hated the world that he killed his only son. That's how a lot of people, they don't read it that way, but that's exactly how they live it. That's the, that's the practical way that they live it out. And I think he's right. And this doesn't just affect our theology when it comes to the atonement or salvation or whatever. It affects us on a practical level. 
the way that we live our lives before God. What is the difference between a life lived before the vindictive God ready to slam down the hand of judgment versus living before the God who doesn't point an accusing finger at the world, but instead offers a solution and invites us into eternal life? I think there's a big difference. I think there's an important difference. I don't know if you've noticed this, but people who like to point fingers don't usually have very good solutions. You ever notice that? Right? Some people are really good at picking out the problem, but then if you ask them, well, what would you do? (laughs) Well, uh. (laughs) this is not the God we serve. (laughs) He didn't come to a point... Uh, to point an accusing finger, he came to solve the problem. He came to solve your problem. He came to fill an emptiness inside of you and inside of this world. He came to invite us into the eternal kind of life. And I think that that is vastly different. If you believe that God is present... If you believe that you live your life before God. Have you ever thought about that before? Have you ever thought about it in terms of that? That every moment of my life, I go wash my hands. When I go to work in the morning, grab a coffee at the drive-thru. When I'm sitting down for dinner at night, every day, every moment that I live, I am living before God. To have that present in my mind would really be something, wouldn't it? Do you agree? That would be something if I could live with that awareness that I live my life before God. Now, I might not live with that awareness, but it's true. So let's just in this moment think about that for a second. We might forget it tomorrow morning. I got it. I get that. I probably will too. There will be some moments where I'm not aware of that like I am right now. But for a moment, let's think about that. What kind of an effect does that have to know that I live my life before that kind of God? If you believe that God is present, that you live your life before Him, how might your anxiety, your your distrust, your motivations, and your goals be affected by living before a person that's ready and waiting to smack you back into line? Think about it. What's that going to do to you spiritually, emotionally? Or what would it do to you? What would it do to those anxieties, fears, motivations, and goals? What would it look like if you live before the God who smiles over you and wants to know you and loves you? At the end of the day, That is the very thing that he wants for each and every one of us, for us to know him. I don't know about you, but that says something to me. It's been a truth in my life that the people who really care about me, the people who really genuinely love me, they don't just do it in some pretend way. They don't just say it, but they actually want to get to know me. And it says something to me that that is the desire of God. Jesus makes this famous prayer in John chapter 17. It's commonly called the high priestly prayer. 
or he lifts up, lifts up his voice before the Father and he prays for his disciples because he knows what is coming. He knows that this perilous times, troubling times are coming and he lifts up his voice and he says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life that they may know you. You know, we miss that sometimes because we often equate eternal life with the hereafter. You know? And that's right, that's good because that's part of it. But when we limit it to that, we limit the way that God wants to interact with us, the way that he want, the thing that he wants to invite us into right now. Jesus' prayer for his disciples was that they would know God. Because knowing God is eternal life. There is a life that we have access to and the, I'm going to say it this way because I don't know any other way to communicate it to get us out of that other way of looking at it. It's the eternal kind of life. It's not a, a, a moment in time that we're looking forward to, but it's a kind of life that you can live right now. It's a state of living. Right, do you want that life? I want that life. The eternal kind of life. What is this eternal life? Knowing God. Paul's prayer request for the church sounded a lot like Jesus' prayer request for his disciples. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? In another place, Paul says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what he's prepared for those who love him. This does not sound like the God who stands over me waiting for me to step out of line. For those who may feel as though, you know, I'm getting into something relevant for you today, and I know that that's not everyone. I know that many of you probably, you're nodding ahead and, and you've experienced this love. And, and you're enjoying it maybe because, you know, it's something you've experienced and it's always nice to talk about the love of God. But for some of you, maybe there's a chord that's being struck today because it's not, necessarily the experience that you've had last week or the week before or maybe for decades. I'm not saying you don't know God today. That's not what I'm saying at all. But how often in our lives have we been wrong about people we thought we knew for better or for worse? There's only one way to get a better sense of what someone is like, you know? Just because I... 
I didn't really peg someone correctly doesn't mean that I don't know them at all. But if I want to get to know them better, I got to spend more time with them. I got to spend some more time learning about them. And that has to happen in their presence. How do I do that? Prayer. I've often said, and I, you know, I've underestimated my own description of it, but prayer is like breathing for the faithful. It's, it's like, you know, if your life, if you're on life support, you're relying on that machine to keep you alive. And, and the life of faith, prayer is kind of like that for the life of faith. When you stop praying, you're basically taking yourself off of faith life support. It's really hard to live the life of faith without prayer. And sometimes we wonder, right? Why am I struggling? Why, why, why does it seem like I'm exhausted? Why does it seem like I can't, I can't find my way to God? God feels distant. That can happen in prayer too. But prayer is life for the faithful person. If I want to know God, I've got to pray. And I, if I want to know God, I've got, to, I've got to understand His thoughts. I've got to understand what makes Him tick, you know? It's just like any healthy relationship. I've got to, I've got to sit down with this person and understand who they are, what, what they like, what they dislike. Sounds simplistic today, but where am I going to find that kind of information? I need to go to the Word. If I want to spend time understanding this God who loves me, i got to get into His Word. I want to know His thoughts. I want to know how He is. I want to know what He dislikes and He likes. And I want to be around His people. You know? I want to be around His people because, you know, I remember this when I was, um, you know, dating Mel. Way, way, way back. One of the things that I, I loved, and I mean, maybe this was because <laughs> I was terribly insecure alone, but I, I just wanted to be around her people, whatever that was, family, her brother, right? I, I wanted to be around her friends because when I was with them, it was like an extension of her, right? I didn't really know her until I saw her around her friends. And it's the same thing with God. If you really want to experience all of God, I don't know, maybe I'm getting out of line here. Uh, again, that's the beauty of being a guest. You can just let the other people clean it up. But, but if you really want to experience God fully, you've got to experience His people. Right? I want to know this God who loves me if I really am going to understand the depths of His love for me, then I've got to get to know Him so that it's not just lip service, but it's experiential and transformative. It's the kind of love that stays. It's the kind of love that is steady and doesn't move on when things get tough. I want that kind of love. I don't want the orange flame. I want the blue flame. You know what I'm talking about? Here's one more point I really want to drive home today. 
God's concern for the world is a nice idea, a nice thought, and, and I'm very thankful for it today. But I want to tag on that God's concern for the world includes a genuine, deep concern for you. You may say that God loves the world, right? But, but it is much more difficult to say that He loves you personally. But isn't it interesting that in the very book that makes the grand declaration that we read today at the outset, that God so loves the world that the author refers to himself several times in that book as the one Jesus loved. John chapter 13 verse 23 John 19, 26, John 20, verse 2, John 21, verse 7, John 21, verse 20. Every time John, and I kind of, I always found it kind of funny that he said it this way, but he said, I'm the one who Jesus loved. <laughs> but, but isn't it interesting? God so loves the world. But John knew that he was the one. God so loves the world. But John knew, I'm the one he loves. I love that. John had a revelation, I think, a real deep revelation of the love of God. The God who loves the world and the one within the world. The individual person with all of their needs and wants and desires and mistakes and shortcomings the one, the one that Jesus loved. Paul the Apostle understood it too, and that's really striking to me as well, because Paul, almost always in the Greek text, he's using plurals. When you read your text, you'll just hear you, because in, in English we just say you. But it's more like he's saying, if you're from Texas, it'd be y'all. He, that's what he's saying. It's almost always um, plural in that sense. But there's this one really moving moment in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. And that guy who's constantly talking about the God who so loved the world says, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God who so loves the world and God who so loves the one. Perhaps someone here today, you live your life more along the lines of Faith in the Son of God who was loved by a vindictive, or was killed by a vindictive father because of my wickedness. But that is not what the Bible says. That is not what the Bible says. Now, we could talk all night about why it says what it says. But the Bible says that we ought to live a life by faith in the Son of God who perfectly revealed the heart of the Father. Look at the life of Jesus and tell me that God doesn't love you. In fact, regarding the love encountered, the love of God encountered in the life of Jesus, I think Jesus might say, have I been with you so long 
my beloved, and you haven't known me. We would do well to remember how we can encounter that love. We find it right in the conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, I always get a kick out of Nicodemus. It's a Pharisee. We know that Jesus and the Pharisees were often at odds. It's kind of like a there's showdown after showdown. It's really Western, you know, Wild West. You know, shooting theological six guns and very interesting. Nicodemus comes at night, <laughs> which I think was on purpose. If you're a Pharisee, you don't want to be seen speaking to Jesus in the way that Nicodemus does. And Nicodemus has some, you know, he has a lot of questions, which I appreciate. I like, I have questions. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he's still overly concerned with what he can or cannot do. You notice that? He's, he's overly concerned with what he can or cannot do. Watch, John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered, and very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. And Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after being grown old? Can, can one enter the second time into the mother's womb and be born? I get a kick out of that because Pharisees are very, very, very intent on what can we do. We need to do something. Do it right. What do we need to do? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. That's a very uncomfortable thing for the Pharisee to hear because the Pharisee wants to have his salvation in his own hands. He wants to control it. He wants it to be his. That's it. And Jesus says, no, this is not something that you have in your power. You've got to be born from above. This thing doesn't originate with you. What is born of flesh is flesh. And what is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus would say this kind of life is like being born again, but spiritually into a new reality. That's what it's like to know the God who so loved the world. In conclusion today, maybe we could all stand. I want to read a passage of Scripture from 1 John chapter 4. Same guy, different letter, different document from the New Testament. But guess what? It's still talking about the love of God. Couldn't, couldn't stop talking about the love of God. And 1 John chapter 4 verse 9 says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Again, that's uncomfortable. If you've been living under the rule of a taskmaster God who's trying to whoop you back into line, that's uncomfortable. Because this love doesn't originate with you. It originates with Him. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He made all the moves to make it happen. 
He made the first move and he made every move in between. It's nothing that I've done. I didn't love him first. He loved me when I still hated him. He loved me when I spat on his name and drug it through the mud. He loved me. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. You don't have boldness in the day of judgment if you're living under a vindictive God who's waiting to smack you back in the line. I'm sorry. That doesn't happen. You're not approaching the judgment boldly. But John says to the beloved listeners of his letter, approach the day of judgment with boldness. Don't be timid about it. You've got a God that you're headed towards that loves you. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Verse 19 so simply puts it. We love him because he first loved us. Would you begin to worship the Lord today? Would you begin to thank him for his love would you begin to thank Him for His grace and His mercy toward you? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. of the Lord in this place this evening I hope that what you've heard are not really my words I hope that what you've heard today is an invitation that comes from someplace beyond me 
because, I mean, I know this. I don't know this in particular about this church or your story or whatever the case is, but I know that I have met many people who have come to church for a very long time and they have misunderstood how much God loves them. And it has had an effect. And it has robbed them of a life that God wants them to have now. An eternal kind of life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is the life that you're being called into today. And I want you to obey the voice of the Lord today. Not mine, but because there is a beckoning coming from somewhere beyond me in the spiritual and God wants to do a work in you thank you for joining us today if you want more information connect with us on our website at missionpoint.ca God bless you